0: Hi, you're listening to Coding Blocks, Episode 2. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to give us reviews on iTunes. Visit us at CodingBlocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send feedback to comments at CodingBlocks.net. Alright,
1: so welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Joe Zach. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I'm Alan Underwood. And today we're discussing boxing and unboxing.
2: Yeah, so we wanted to give you guys, like, a real-world example. And uh, Grand Theft Auto just came out, the new version. And uh, let's say I wanted to ship a version or a copy of it to Michael because he's the outlaw. (laughs) That joke never gets old. (laughs) And depending on how I'm shipping it, you know, whether it's UPS or FedEx or DHL or whatever, the shipper doesn't really know what's in the box. They they know how much it weighs, but they don't know it could be flammable or fragile. They're supposed to know if it's fragile, (laughs) but... Uh, In any case, the recipient knows how to use it and it's their responsibility to know, but the shipper just cares that they can treat it like any other box. They can put it on their planes and trains and trucks and get to the receiver and that's all they care about. And it's up to the recipient to know what to do with it. It's a little bit like our, our topic this week. We're going to be talking about boxing and unboxing. I just want to give you a little background
1: before we get started. All right, so that leads us into the stack. And, and just a real quick overview of the stack is there is a very small piece of memory, and I believe it's one megabyte by definition, of, of variables within a method that actually go onto the stack. And and, and I think Michael's going to give us a little bit of information about the type of variables that go into the stack.
0: Well, yeah, okay, so we discussed it. What, what are the value types, right? I mean, we, we've said that there are different types like int, decimal, car, string, et cetera, structures, and enums. But, but what does that mean, though? Right, so value types have a fixed size, which is to say that an int
2: 32 is always 32 bytes, whether it's negative one or 32 million. It's always 32 bytes. And the compiler knows exactly how much space to allocate for value types because the values are copied, as Alan just said. And so you can't store a reference type on the stack because you don't know how big that thing's going to be at runtime. And so you have to store a fixed size pointer to that object on the heap. And that's actually uh, one of the reasons why arrays are reference types instead of value types.
1: Yeah, and so everything that goes onto the stack is actually a last in first out. And if you've dealt with arrays, you know of the push and pops or any stacks you have push and pops. So basically every variable that comes into your method gets added to the top of the stack via a push. And then as the method exits, then those all get popped off the top of the stack and you move out. So the thing about these value types is when they get automatically added to the stack, you know at compile time, as Joe just said, so you know exactly how much memory needs to be allocated to that method at the time that it starts running. The the compiler already knows that. And the other important thing about these stack variables is they literally only exist for the, the term of the method. So when that method opens up, those variables are allocated, they're put onto the stack, and then as soon as your method is over, it exits and all that memory is deallocated and is now available for the next method call. Referred
0: to as the scope, right? <clears throat> <If> Referred <you're clears throat> to put that in a normal. The scope of the method. Reaction, yep. Right. It kind of begs the question, like, okay, so we've talked about value types, but what does this mean for reference types, right? Like, where are they stored? So, Joe kind of already threw out some information about uh, reference types, and and you know when he brought up the arrays and everything. So, where are they stored then? Why why don't we discuss that for a
1: moment? So your reference type variables, they have their data stored on the heap, but there is actually a pointer that is stored on the stack that points over to that particular location. And when this happens, these variables enter into what are called generations on the heap. You have generation zero, which are short-lived heap variables that get collected frequently by the garbage collector. And Generation 1 stores variables that live on there longer. So anything that kind of gets passed over a few times in the Generation 0, those go down to Generation 1 and get collected uh, less frequently over time because they're more expensive. And the other important thing to know about reference variables is unlike stack variables uh, and the value types, these things can actually live long past their uh, the scope of the method that they're in. So even though your method is gone and all the stack variables have been deallocated, your actual uh, objects and values that are over on the heap, those things still exist until garbage collection comes and picks them up and cleans them out.
0: Okay, so we've given an overview of value types and for reference types. and. You know, so so what does this mean then are the benefits of reference types, right? So why don't we discuss that for a moment, right? So as Alan mentioned before, value types are known at compil- compile time, what the size is going to be, and they can go ahead and, and be predefined what the allocation is going to be for that. But reference types can be dynamic in size. So we don't know what the size of that is going to be except for the, the, the pointer that's going to hold the address location. But the actual the the, the data, that blob, It can be dynamic and grow in size as needed on the heap. So that's one benefit of a reference type over a value type.
2: Right, and uh, that's really important because the default stack size is actually one megabyte. And it's configurable, but one megabyte is nothing compared to the gigabytes that your heap could be.
1: And another big thing to know is you would have absolutely no such thing as object-oriented programming without without this heap. Right, like imagine writing a word processor with only,
0: you know, ints and date times. Right. Okay, so here's the trick question then. What about nullable types? Where does that fall? Take a guess, reference types, value types?
1: Yeah, we actually had to Google this one. Um, so basically, uh, your, your nullable types are actually instances of a nullable struct. So they are actually value types.
0: So I'll be honest, like when we originally threw this one out there as a question amongst ourselves when we were just discussing, uh, you know, what we wanted to put together for the show, immediately in my mind I automatically assumed it was, a, I just pictured going back to like seed day site, right? just a, a, a void pointer kind of type, like it, it would find that at, at runtime what the type was going to be. But I pictured it was a pointer to an object uh, that was on the heap. I, I was really shocked when we learned that it was a, a nullable struct.
1: Yeah, and it makes yeah. sense because it's way more efficient. But, yeah, we I think we all kind of guessed it was going to be an object and then... Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's like one of those scenarios where maybe too often uh, we we can kind of like pit, you know, fall into a pitfall where like we'll just assume like, okay, well, I think this is how I would implement this. It, so it's probably how it is. And then you don't bother to look into it. And so it was really interesting to learn this detail when we actually did uh, dive into that one. Yeah, I think part of it is uh, when I hear the word null, I think reference type. Mm-hmm. So uh,
2: usually those... Um, not usually but a lot of times those um those value types have some sort of default value like int to 0 or boolean's false
0: yeah okay so you know, we we've given a, a basic understanding right as to uh you know the behind the scenes of of how the memory is is dealt with here so joe can you tell us you know what what is this boxing and unboxing thing that that we're trying to describe here sure So to
2: put it plainly, boxing wraps a value type inside of a reference type and stores it on the heap. So if you remember, we said that values or value types are normally stored on the stack because they're fixed size and we get a lot of benefits from doing that. So boxing wraps that value type up inside a reference type and unboxing almost does the reverse. It converts one of these wrapper objects back
0: to the value type on the stack. Okay, but wait a minute, though. So, it's not exactly the exact operation, right? So, boxing, boxing um, is not. You, you said that that uh, the boxing puts it on, uh, puts a copy of it over there, but the unboxing operation is not the exact opposite. The unboxing operation is just simply getting an address to the value type that's contained within that uh, that that you know, within that piece of memory.
1: There. Yeah, but that all really depends on which source you choose to uh, to believe, because uh, Michael, I think they were using, what, what was it, the, uh, the, the... The Bible? Yeah, the C-sharp for CLR <laughs> apparently, or... C-sharp. CLR via C-sharp. Yeah, so that's where they got their information, but if you actually go to MSDN, and, and we'll have a link to both the, uh, the book and this, but on MSDN it actually says that it's literally
0: the opposite. You make a copy and, and you cast it. But... Okay, so, so there is some conflicting documentation out there, right? But, you know, in our own conversations about this, though, I, I'm kind of guessing that the that, um, in a managed code scenario, right, what the MSDN said is probably nine times out of ten going to be right, that the, the, the copy operation does follow getting the address. But if we discuss an unmanaged operation – Then you could kind of see where the two could be separate, where unboxing would just simply be getting the pointer to the value type contained within, but the actual copy operation would be an optional and separate step from that, right? So, you know, it kind of depends, and I'd I'd be kind of, I'd be really curious to see behind the scenes, like if it, you know, which which one is correct, right? Right, because right
1: now it's basically definition differences so also uh jeffrey
2: rector is the man so he gets my benefit of the doubt <laughs> is this our clr c sharp guy it is <laughs> all right <laughs> all right so boxing and unboxing have a bad name in the the blogosphere stack overflow forums and other wretched hives the scum and villainy and there's a reason for that uh actually there are seven reasons for that seven deadly seven deadly sins or reasons <laughs>
0: Yeah, I kind of fell flat on that. Oh, <laughs> should we, we want to try it again? <laughs> well, I didn't.
1: <laughs> no, we're good.
2: All right, well, we're just going. All right. So number one, boxed values take up more memory. So uh, you you want to expand upon that? Sure. So we said when you're talking about the stack, a 32-bit integer takes up 32 bits. But when we're taking that and throwing it over on the heap, we actually have to add in the size of the pointer to that object in the heap, as well as the sync block index, which is used for locking. And so that 32-bit integer plus the 32-bit pointer, or you know it could be 64 and 64 bits, and that 32-bit sync block index ends up being 92 bytes, or sorry bits, or uh, 128. So three to four times the size. That's uh, that's pretty scary. So much for your light little integer. Right. So number two, box values require
0: an additional read. Okay. As compared to... On what, the stack. Like, like, define that. Sure. So
2: uh, a value on the stack is just right there. Boom. No pointer. We know exactly the size of it. We know exactly how to read it. So 32-bit integer is just, boom, these 32 bits. But... Once we move that value over to the heap, then we've got to fetch that box value by first getting a pointer, looking up that object on the heap, and then getting it out of there. So it just means an additional read, or double the reads. So in number three, your short-lived values actually clog the heap
1: Yeah, and that is true. Like, if you just keep creating a ton of reference types, they will go into generation zero on the heap. And they could potentially, you know, depending on the size of the the, or the number of objects you throw on there, you absolutely could grow that or, or fill up that heap pretty quickly. But also, generally speaking, a lot of things will be cleaned up fairly fast, but it is more overhead. Exactly. Also, reason number four... Boxing
0: and unboxing operations take extra time in CPU. Well you mean because they're the operation required to allocate the space for the heap and then copy the value over and then return the address, right? Exactly. All Which right. then kind of goes back into our clogging the heap example too, right? Or or like if you were to imagine that scenario, like how much longer it would take to process.
2: Yep. Yeah, just a little bit of extra overhead. And speaking of extra overhead, number five, casting. Casting isn't free, but it's generally considered to be in that don't-worry-about-it category of performance hits. And it's probably the least of your concerns in any sort of you know, real application. But the real problem with casting is that you get no compile-time safety checks. So you need to either check ahead or be smote by invalid cast exceptions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I always worry about being smote. Smite
2: <laughs> me. So number six is implicit boxing. And this is one of the
1: big ones. Yeah, this one's kind of cool. Um, basically, uh, an easy example is when you're doing like a string.format and you have value types nested in your string.format as parameters for the string. Like you might have an integer and a date time and a string in there. And if you don't specifically specify a two string on each one of those, it's going to box it into an object and then
0: get unboxed back into a string. So right. literally, then, if I had in my curly braces zero and then I was passing in a number hmm then let's just say it wasn't even in a variable, just hard coded number one yep, you're it's, saying that's gonna get boxed in unless I were to call a two string
1: that's correct. it'll huh. get turned into an object on the heap and then do and then it will convert it back to a string, so that's an implicit one that most people don't even know about it's sneaky it is.
2: All right, so uh,
1: number seven, finally,
2: this is the big one for me. They're almost completely unnecessary. Generics solve most of these problems. Mike will be talking about that in a little bit, and uh, we'll also be talking about some of the reasons that boxing is still around. But for now, just remember that boxing and unboxing is big, slow, ugly, sneaky, and
0: largely unnecessary. Okay, so with that, let's get into some of the unintended consequences Uh, as they relate to interfaces right so in our in our previous episode uh, we focused on interfaces right and as it relates to this conversation there's still some some conversation left to be had right so interfaces are defined as reference types within the language okay and why are they reference types i would have thought they'd be value types i mean there's not a whole lot to an interface right Okay so in- interfaces are reference types right because they they can represent objects and you're not you're not going to necessarily know that ahead of time until uh you know the developer has written his code and it's compiled okay so we're not talking about the interface as it's written we're talking about like the object that's being that's got that interface applied that's implementing it right yes. that's right yeah okay. and and so going back to the unintended consequences that are related to that right interface definitions that have methods that take object with capital o must box the value types in that scenario so for example let's discuss the I comparable right because it's, it's an easy one to discuss it only takes in it only has one method to implement which is the compare to method and it takes in uh, object um, in that scenario if I had a class, and let's just call it my class. And, and I wanted to implement I comparable compared to, and, and I want, I expected the users of my class, the other developers that were using my class, if I expected them, the behavior would be that they would pass in an integer. Then that integer would have to be boxed every time they called that method, that compare to method. And, Furthermore, they might not even realize that they're calling it. And this goes back to Joe's point about them being sneaky. Because let's say that they had a list of my objects and then they called an operation like a list dot sort. Mm-hmm. That's going to then behind the scenes call my compare to method. And every time that integer would be boxed. Yep. Right. Okay, so so this begs the question like how can we avoid boxing? right and we can we can we can try to avoid boxing with generic interfaces
1: so but before we get into that it, we've mentioned generics a few times, and it, it might be helpful if people actually understood what a generic was and more specifically a generic interface
0: okay so so a generic interface is uh is is an interface that's defined as um you know it takes in t right so you got uh the the less than n t uh, greater than, right? That that that's your interface type definition. Like when you see that, you know that it's a generic, and you're allowed to specify the type uh, that you, that your method is going to take in.
2: Yeah, that's a hard thing to,
0: to describe in words. <laughs> it's not a simple one. I wish that they, they, I feel like we as a developer community need to come up with a simple way to to solve that one. So if you say that again, so it's basically class name brackets, and then your type. Yes, we're talking about brackets. Well, well in characters. this case, an interface, but. Yeah. Yeah, I well I was I was being more generic than that though, right? Like like if you're just looking at the the documentation for the interface and you see I comparable less than n t greater than, then that's saying that that interface that you're looking at in the documentation is a generic version of the interface. Now, when it comes time to actually implement the interface, then that's when you're going to say something like, you know, my class uh, colon I comparable and then within contained within the less than and greater than, you're going to say the type, so in 32 or I comparable string, right, uh, to specify which type you're expecting th- that you're going to implement for the I comparable. So just, to, I mean, real quick, I, I think we kind of glossed over what generics really
1: are, and it's funny that they're called generics because in my mind they're more specifics than generics. Yeah, it's it, one of those things. It, it's confusing, but when, when you say that you have a generic, as opposed to having um uh something like a list of objects or in the in the old days there was a hash table you basically had objects you get to define what those what those types of objects are going to be so when you're talking about generics and you have something like a uh, a list you actually have a list of type my class and so when he was saying something like list bracket my class, that's basically telling you that every item that is stored in that list is going to be of type my class, and that is what a generic is. So when he's talking about the generic interfaces, that now means that you have an interface that defines the type that is going to be in that interface.
0: So how does that reduce boxing? Okay, well, so by specifically defining the method signatures uh, with a specific expected value types, right, when we implement our interface, we're 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 not going to have to cast so in that int example that I gave before, we're going to have a specific uh method for a compare to int. And so it's not going to have to take that int and box it as a as an object uh that we then later might need to unbox, right? It's already going to be able to just pass the value of the int into it. Right? So so it provides some compile time type checking as well. So that's another benefit in in, in addition to uh, reducing the boxing. So so you get the performance gain, but then you might even argue that it's it you get the greater benefit of having the compile time checking so that uh, as other developers are using your code, they can be safe and no in how casting. they use that. No yeah. casting. And, and yeah, so because it is the, the type that's expected in the method signature doesn't have to box it. So on top of that generic interfaces can be implemented for multiple types right so for example uh you know i gave that the my generic class example i could have an i comparable implementation of compare to for both a string or an int 32 right uh, well with that i mean do you mean that your interface is just overloading those methods so because we're implementing the the generic i comparable we can overload this interface method with the types that we want to allow Right, so it's overloading it, but it allows us to be specific as to what types we want to we want to take in, so that other developers can use our code safely. So, so let me give you an example, right? So let let's say that I've got I've got some class, and inside that class, it has some memory the set aside to store uh, an an integer, right? But I want to be able to let my class be compared to other instances of itself by a by a number, okay? And and I'm saying number specifically rather than integer or any other data type, right? So I could implement one version of compare to that could easily take in an int32 and then that way programmatically, right, if you have some code and you want to say okay, well what's based off of some other data source, maybe you want to compare you already have that int, you can pass it in and that's fine. But for example, if I also wanted to allow the string version of the number to be taken in maybe from the command line, if I want to prompt the user, for example, right, then I could implement a version of uh, iComparable compared to as the string type and ha- have a version that would work for that, right? And so then it's coming in as its native type and not being boxed. Right, right, for the for the int version, right. Yeah, so there's a lot of benefits there to using the generic version of the interfaces over the non-generic interfaces if you have that option. You do have to be careful, though, because some generic interfaces, some of the methods that you'll have to implement. So if the generic interface, for example, inherits from a non-generic interface, you might have to implement some interface methods that are still might include some boxing so but as a general rule of thumb if you have the option to support a generic interface over a non-generic you should go for the generic version right so earlier we mentioned that boxing and unboxing is almost unnecessary but let's discuss like right, why there still is a need for boxing and unboxing so yeah i mean if you look in the pre.net 2.0 days
1: you had like you basically had no choice you had things like array lists and hash tables and and in those days those only took in objects so you were forced to box and unbox if you were using those there was no way around it uh, unless you did fixed size arrays and and then that kind of killed that that purpose um, and then you also have when you inherit other people's code whether it be third party code or if you just inherit a code base or you get a code base that you have to work in that has a lot of this stuff in there. I mean, unless you have the time to go in and refactor all that stuff, you're just kind of stuck with a little bit of boxing and unboxing.
2: Also, .NET does some stuff under the covers that still uses boxing and unboxing. For example, dynamics and reflection both make use of these techniques. Also, anywhere that you want to take param lists of both value and reference types, for example, console.writeline or string.format, these both take pram list of objects because you can use both value types like ints and date times as well as reference types like classes and
0: anything else with you know, two string which is everything so there there are some uh, some tools that we can use to detect you know if you wanted to like actually look behind the scenes and figure out what's happening right like once you compile your code so IL dasm that comes with your installation of Visual Studio there's also another utility if you want a GUI interface that's uh, a free open source project called IL spy either one of these you can open up uh, or, or pass in the path to your uh, library or executable and it'll it can show you the uh, decompiled version of that, Or, yeah, the, the intermediary language version of that. And you can see, you can actually see the boxing and unboxing operations there. You can just simply search for the term, the, the word box and unbox, and you can see it.
2: Right, and that's uh, especially important because, uh, as we mentioned, the boxing and unboxing is sneaky. So it's hard to tell just by looking at the code when it's happening. So uh, speaking of being sneaky, I wanted to mention uh, a little trick we found when we were doing some research. So as we mentioned, console write line and string format both take in a string and an objects param list. So this allows you to do stuff like um one example we talked about um offline was ninety nine bottles of beer on the wall. So you would loop through and you would, you know, console dot line out this out. You would you would have a little token in there for the number ninety nine in a for loop. And um Unfortunately, what ends up happening is that numbers you count down from 99 down to, to 0 or 1 ends up getting boxed that many times. But what we found is, actually, if you call that toString method, that you avoid the boxing. And that's because the string method actually exists on the value type. And so you can just skip the boxing operation, pass it a string, which is what it you know, needs anyway for the writing, and uh, voila, no boxing. I feel like you should point out a proper programmer would count down to zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. I've never gotten that far down, and uh, I know bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> I don't
1: think I've ever made it out of the 90s. Counting starts at zero. That's true. All right, so that kind of leads us into our section for tips of the week. So uh, this week, I, I've got just a little one that's that's you know might be helpful for any of you out there trying to debug your programs. You can actually assign labels to your breakpoints. And then that way, when you go in and you look at all your breakpoints, you can actually see some human-readable stuff by you instead of, you know, some file out nowhere at line 165. You can actually see, hey, this is the breakpoint to check this or whatever. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I, I wasn't even aware of it. So that that's my tip of the week.
0: All right. So my tip of the week is uh, going to be a little bit different, right? So i've actually had i've actually had a few developers that that have over the course of the years have stopped by and they'll see my workstation area and, and my my windows layout and they think it's kind of odd so <laughs> it's like the bat cave <laughs> so so i actually especially in a you know this this is assuming a multi monitor environment um but within visual studio i i like to tear off the pages um and and put that into another screen so for example in one one monitor i'll have like whatever primary piece of code that I'm looking at, and I'll and I'll allow it to have space to go uh, more vertical space, top to bottom, and then along with the Solution Explorer next to it, so I can see a list of files from top to bottom. But then in the second window, though, I'll have another uh, you know set of files, and I might have one of them available that's that's just. Uh, there, for reference purpose, maybe like if, if i'm working with someone else's class or interface type and and I just want to know be able to make sure like okay yeah that's that's the method that I meant to call, but then you know underneath that I'll also have like maybe my find results or my uh you know like if i'm if I'm actually going through the debugger, I might have the output window and the locals and what and watches and whatnot um also on that that second monitor so yeah, you know, I guess basically the tip here is that you know, use all of your available space if you can. Because for me personally, I, I've gotten so accustomed to that type of work environment where I can just have a lot of information in front of my face without having to go searching for it that when I I almost feel crippled when I when I go back to an interface where like I have only one thing to look at and. You know, so so that that's 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 my tip. Is, is and and in real,
1: real quick, just, just so you understand, when he says he tears one off what he means is he literally clicks on a tab of an open file, or or whatever section he wants to kind of split off into the the other monitor, and he drags it over there. So that's what he means. Because when I first saw him do it, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, "Wait a second, you can do that without opening Visual Studio twice?" <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason, that totally blew my mind. You know, I'm spoiled. I've got dual monitors
2: at work and home, but it just never occurred to me to try and split up Visual Studio into multiple
0: windows and. It's it's just amazing when you see Michael working like that. Yeah, and and I'm not I, over the years I've had it's surprising, surprising to me at least, but I've had I've had several people that have commented over the years about about the way that I have my Windows layout and like I said I, I've grown so accustomed to it that I just find that it's the easiest way because because I have a lot of information especially like if I'm actually walking through debugging right I can see all my breakpoints in one window, I can have something else open for reference purposes only, but then I can see all of the, you know, the output that's coming out. Uh, I can see the, the locals, you know, it it's just really helpful to me.
1: Yeah, it, it's sweet.
0: Yeah, and um, my
2: tip is uh, I wanted to mention there's a really nice free decompiler that you can use from JetBrains. It's called Dot .peak, that's spelled out D-O-T-P-E-E-K, .peak. A buddy of mine used to use this to look up what Microsoft was doing in in a few cases and uh you know I just like to um inspire you guys to try going out there and decompiling a few things like maybe some X and A games, I don't know.
0: And uh see in, what you see. In, in your free time, should you you know fill up to it. I feel like there's a new game that just came out. Right? Yeah, maybe okay. you
2: can uh, decompile and recompile it, you know, and have a little fun.
0: All right, so with that, we will be putting up the links and the show notes up on our site. You can find those at codingblocks.net slash episode two. Uh, we've discussed value types versus reference types. We hope you got a good understanding of that, as well as the stack versus the heap. We've discussed boxing and unboxing and that it's big, it's slow, it's sneaky, and it's it's at this point almost unnecessary. Uh, we have informed you of some unintended consequences as they relate to interfaces. Um but we've also reminded that they are still useful for things such as dynamics and reflection methods that take objects. And uh, you know, we remind you to to avoid them with generic collections and tricks like the two string trick that we talked about on on your value types.
1: Yep. So that wraps up our show. Um, please do subscribe to us on iTunes or or uh, Stitcher or anywhere else you know, go up to our site and subscribe to our mailing list and uh, leave us a review if you're on iTunes or Stitcher or any of those it would be greatly appreciated to help grow the show and you know um, visit us at codingblocks.net and any questions or comments or anything you'd like us to clarify or go into more that might help you along you can get us at comments at codingblocks.net and uh, we'll be back soon with episode
0: 3 looking forward to it